constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. This first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're um, pleased to be joined by a former colleague and uh, educational transformer, Jeffrey Herman. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to finally get you get you on. Um, and I want to talk about some of your really uh, innovative and creative work and helping bring about transformation. But before we do that, uh, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better on the show. And you've been a staff uh, and faculty member and academic leader at the University of Illinois since your um, your uh, PhD graduation from that institution a few years back. And your research focuses on how students um, learn engineering. Uh, concepts, among other things. But let's go back in the time machine. And what were some of the early influence in your life that put you on your current path? Yeah. Um, so I think, like many people, my story starts with my parents. Um, they're both. They both kind of put this massive belief of the importance of education into me. And it was just one of those things. Like, I never assumed. I never thought that I would do anything but you know, go to college and do all this other stuff and just kind of sleepwalking defaulted into going to school. Um, and one of the things that I loved was teaching. Um, I lo- like my mom tells a story of how I used to try to teach my siblings fractions when I was little. Um, but aside from teaching, most of my passions were actually music and, um, and then I found myself, you know, doing well in math and science. People are like, oh, you're good at math and science, and you kind of like computers, so you should go into computer engineering. Um, not knowing at all what that meant, what that was, what that looked like. Um, sure. It was kind of like, oh, I need a major. So, um, and I, like, for the most part, hated it. <laughs> um, I, I remember telling my mom several times, I was like, I don't think this is for me. I switched to electrical engineering and just saying like, maybe I should just go be a physics te- high school physics teacher and that would be so much better. Um, but my mom just goes like, you know, if you go, if you do that, you can't go the other direction. But if you stick with engineering for a while, you, you can always, you know, change your mind later and go do that, go do the physics teacher thing later. And so I found myself like, I don't know, um, my junior, senior year swearing I'd never go to graduate school. Um, I thought it was the worst thing ever. Um, and then, but I did well enough that I uh, surprisingly got provisional admittance into the graduate program in the electrical and computer engineering department at the University of Illinois um, without applying. It was kind of, kind of one of those things where it was like, hey, if you want to, you can come here. 
And I found myself at the end of my senior year without a job offer and nothing else to do. So I decided to take on grad school. Mm. Um, it was kind of one of those ac- happy accidents um, because I was assigned a teaching assistant position because I didn't have any ideas of what I wanted to do for research and was found myself teaching a topic I never really studied before, which is computer architecture, and fell in love with it. Um, both hmm. kind of the topic and teaching of it. Um, I, this is not something I, I took maybe the one required course for computer architecture in undergrad, but then sure. never really thought about it after that. Um, didn't, the course didn't make much of an impact on me um, from that perspective. And then when I was teaching it, I found like I was fascinated both by the topic and by teaching it, and specifically the problem that I, I think many teachers experience, which is I'm telling the students, you know, you should know A, B, and C, and you ask them to repeat it back to you, and they come back with QRS, and you're like, I don't even know what just happened here. Um, and just realizing that teaching was a lot harder than I expected, um, mm. and just being very frustrated with students not learning, um, and kind of also motivated by my own experiences of not being too thrilled with my undergraduate education. I learned a lot, but it was yeah. emotionally difficult um, for me. What was it? Yeah, what was it about, uh, com- you know, so this topic that didn't do much for you as an undergraduate, what was it about the topic itself that you found fascinating? I, I don't know. Like, for me, it's, I don't know if it's so much the topic as so much as it's, mm. I enjoy teaching it. Like, Teaching forces me to have to think about something in, in a way that I don't have to think about with, for like, when I would do something for a test, it's like, I learn it, it's this dry thing that I'm just like, okay, this, is, this was kind of interesting, but okay, now the test is done, let's move on. Um, I was a good little academic. <laughs> sure. Growing up. And then when, once I started being in front of the classroom and started having to figure out, like, how do I make this interesting? How do I make this exciting for my students? I started finding it interesting and exciting for myself. Um, and that that's really, for me, what I discovered was my excitement over lots of topics is I love to talk about them. I love to teach about them. I love to tell other people about what it is that I just learned because now it's exciting. Um, and so that was a, a large part of kind of my intro into engineering education and my frustration. And then I, shortly after around then, I had a, a chance meeting with a friend of mine, JT, who was doing research on how students learn computer architecture topics with Michael Louie and Craig Zillis here at the university. And um, he's like, hey, this is what I'm doing for my master's thesis. And I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, hmm. And so I sat on it, chewed on it for about six months and decided all right, I guess I'm doing a PhD. I contacted Michael Louie, asked, like, hey, do you have any openings? I'd love to do research with you. And that was kind of the beginning of a new road of just being super excited about learning how students learn. Um, And that eventually got me connected to iFoundry um, later in my career. Yeah, and uh, I want to just circle back to somewhere in there, you talked about this passion for things musical. What... uh as a, who are you as a musician? What uh, do you still keep up with that? What, what's that about? Yeah, um, so I actually started off uh, college being a dual major in um, computer engineering and cello performance. Uh, I still do that on a regular basis. I still actually, that's in large part actually, interestingly, I bring that a lot into my computer architecture classes. Um, 
there's a lot of synergy between uh, signal processing, which is what I studied in electrical engineering and yeah. computer architecture. Um, and so that's actually kind of the fun part for me is that I get to bring that into kind of my experiences. And then I still play kind of on the weekends, weekend warrior for music. So. Yeah. Yeah. Actually we started, we had this, uh, Big Beacon Unconference at Lehigh, and uh, one of the opening sessions was about two ways of listening, and we started with music, and Jeff Evans from Purdue brought in his flugelhorn and did some exercises with people listening to some music, which was kind of a cool thing, but it is, it's interesting, a number of people call out this, call out art or music or something um, uh, that's more more right-brained, and, and um, but it's, it's almost like it's a guilty pleasure, it's like something that... Um, but but when they're happy when they bring it into their classroom, as you just uh, or somehow bring it into who they are as a teacher, uh, as you just described. Comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So also on the show, as you know, in in a whole new engineer, Mark Somerville and I talked about these unleashing experiences where sometimes you either someone trusts you or you trust yourself, and you have the courage to do something that you that was hard, that was fear-inducing that you might not otherwise have done. And um, not not everyone has these, or, and they're not all big honking experiences uh, necessarily, but um, to what extent have you had experiences or individuals in your life uh, that have helped you, give you the courage to go your own way? Yeah, um, so I think mine is definitely not one of those, like that one crystallizing moment, but a slow sure. coming to the realization that, I had uh, champions and allies who were excited to see where I could go. Um, so Michael Louie and Craig Zillis, my PhD advisors, were definitely among the, the first, like, really pushing people who were like, you know, yeah, this is not a traditional PhD dissertation, but if you want to make this your dissertation, by all means, let's go try that. Let's go see how to make that happen. Let's, and that they, they were willing to take a risk on what I was excited about, what I was interested in. Um, and they just pretty much from day one, despite the fact that I didn't really know educational research background, they're like, this is your project, run with it. Um, and that was definitely the genesis of something where it's like, by the end of my four years of PhD, I mean, I was, I was more, I became increasingly more energized um, over the four years by the time, by the time I was defending, most people are like, you're way too happy to be defending this semester. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, why wouldn't I be happy? I get to study and look at whatever I want to do. Like, this, this is the best. Um, and so that was like definitely one of the first experiences where it's like my, I began to feel like my career and my life and my research interests and my passions were like fully mine to just pursue and that I had good allies who were pushing for me to pursue that and made it possible for me to pursue that. And then uh, after I uh, continued to kind of experience that with a short uh, doc, uh, postdoc at Purdue, and then when uh, you, uh, you and Ray Price and Bruce Litchfield came sure. and said, hey, hey, do you want to come back here with iFoundry and try to help us realize some visions here? I was like, that sounds great. Um, well, and some of your decisions were non-traditional ones that you know people you know you probably had fairly traditional faculty saying, well, you know, you're you're headed in, you're you're not doing the regular tenure track thing, and this yeah, this educational research is uh, 
nice fun and games, but now you need to buckle down and do something, some serious technical topic if you want to make it. You probably had you probably had some people that were discouraging along the way, and but but you were able to do the thing that you wanted to do in part because these other people were saying, no, it's okay, be be Jeffrey Herman. Yeah, uh, that's definitely been the case, and I definitely like that's been the one thing which I feel. I've been very fortunate to have every step of the way. There's been someone championing for me to say, no, go do what you want to do. I was like, all right, let's do this. Yeah. Awesome. And we worked together. I left the university of Illinois in 2010 and was shortly before then that uh, you, you came and worked at iFoundry and that was near the end of my, my time there. And, and you've become uh, recently taken another position as a teaching faculty member, but um and I'm, I was trying to remember this story myself, but I don't, I don't remember your iFoundry uh, connecting story. How did, how did you end up getting? How did you end up working with iFoundry? Uh, it's a great question. Um, so, my first recollection of it was you and um, Bruce Litchfield put together like an engineering 498 special topics course yeah. Yeah. that um, myself and maybe like eight other students participated in where it was kind of like the seeds and planting of what yep. would this iFoundry look like? What should we do? What could, what's possible? Yep. Um, and I remember kind of hearing for the first time, the ideas of like, you get, we went through like the history and the philosophy of engineering. What is an engineer? What is engineering education? I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and we just kind of loosely stayed in touch from there. Um, it wasn't until, like I said, I was at a postdoc at Purdue, um, um, you, you and Ray kind of like, hey, we have this idea for this intrinsic motivation course conversion idea. Yeah. This project, would you be interested in helping to spearhead that, make that happen? Um, and so I um, came back to work on that. Yeah. And um, and actually, yeah, let's just jump into that. We've got a, uh, about three, four minutes left in this segment, but I want, I want to head into that intrinsic motivation. And so the – and uh, – you know, I could tell the the story of it in my own words, but I want to hear how you describe it. So, um, oftentimes people look at efforts like Olin from the perspective of a big public like an Illinois or a Purdue, and they say that's nice, but we we've got ten thousand students here, not three hundred. And um, um, based on what you've, this is maybe more of a question for the end, but we'll we'll start here. You know, so. The, the idea was to figure out a way to be scalable and intrinsically motivating. Is that is based on your experience uh, over these now fairly numerous years? Is that a pipe dream or a real possibility? Definitely different, um, but definitely I, I still believe it's it's realizable and something which I've been very excited to experience here in the computer science department. At Illinois, is actually the number of students who are super excited to invest back into the education of their peers. Um, mm. One thing that does scale with having thousands of students is having thousands of students, um, which comes with that you have tens and hundreds of students who will actually care about improving the quality of the education, both for themselves as well as for their peers. And so, one of the things I, I can definitely say, I've I, I sing the praises of my course staff everywhere I go. Um, I was fortunate again to inherit a wonderful culture that's very much that where my course staff, I have like 20 to 30 students on my course staff. 
<laughs> in a semester, which is bigger than some people's classes. Yeah. Um, but th- they really make it run. Um, they really make my class run. They, they create new design projects, new opportunities for their peers. They design new homeworks. They design, um, yeah. So just the ability to do new and creative things in the classroom is really powered by many of my students. Um, and I just get to ride their energy and their enthusiasm for designing creative and innovative and engaging experiences for their peers. Well, and of course, that was you know back in back when you joined iFoundry. That the idea was how do we create community and culture and and uh, around intrinsic motive, what we called intrinsic motivation conversion, a con- conversion, and and uh, what was when. When we, when Ray and I came to you, and how, and and now as you've done it a little bit, not more than a little bit, how, what's your what's your sense of what that what the what those words mean? What does what does that mean to a, a to classroom redesign or reform? Yeah, so I think when we first came up with the idea and we wrote our grant proposal, something we called it like low-cost intrinsic motivation course conversions. And there was that little nugget of this idea of low cost that if faculty were going to do it, it had to be low cost, and that we wanted to make these courses more intrinsically motivating and engaging, and that students would kind of, what I just described for myself, would find their passions, find something they're excited about, and really feel like their learning was their own and they got taken in their own direction. Um, weirdly, I think as I've, the more I've looked at how do we create more student-centric learning environments, um, that low-cost part actually has become increasingly important to me, um, hmm. that faculty have so many competing demands and so many competing challenges that we also have to find how do we make change intrinsically motivating for faculty? Yeah. Um, and that yeah. there's a degree to which fac- change has to be faculty-centered. Um, and so there's this mixture of the actual teaching of a course needs to be just as energizing and fun and low-cost for faculty as we want the in- classroom and experience to be engaging um, and motivating and energizing for the students. Yeah, no, that um, I think maybe let's let's take a break at that point and come back and talk about some of there's sort of the two sides of this. The the polarity is between faculty centered and student centered. And and we sort of have this weird amalgam of both uh, kind of going forward in these efforts. And I think there's been really important learning on both sides. So let's come back and talk about how do we map intrinsic motivation theory to classroom experience and then talk a little bit about that that faculty piece that that uh, has been increasingly important in your work. How's that sound? Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Jeffrey Herman. Stay with us, and we're going to talk. We're going to first try to map out how do we get intrinsic motivation into big lecture honking classrooms at public universities. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? 
Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization. And also the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're, we're back with Jeffrey Herman from the University of Illinois, and we're talking about we're talking about a lot of things, but we're talking about intrinsic motivation of, of conversion of large classes, classrooms. So there's this this, uh, this problem uh, when people look at a, at uh, what Olin's accomplished, and that's quite a lot. But they go, well, that's nice, uh, 300, 400 person school with 30 faculty and half a billion dollars. I could do that too. Um, of course, that's not really true. Um, but on the other hand, there is a point that a small pilot experience like an Olin uh, translating that to a big public is a real is a real challenge. And so one of the ways in that we we talked about was uh, to fairly directly use intrinsic motivation theory, uh, different breakdowns we had. We've had Dan Pink and Ed DC on the show at different times, but uh, uh, Dan Pink's uh, formulation of intrinsic motivation, uh, autonomy, mastery, and 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 purpose, uh, Jeff Reherman, uh, how 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 can ideas like that map to uh, classroom experience? Yeah. Um, so when I think about intrinsic motivation and like how do we engage students and get them excited about a topic, oftentimes whenever I start bringing this up to any any group of faculty, they're always like, "Oh yeah, well it's easy in your domain. Just look at how relevant it is to all these different areas of life." Um, and I get this from biologists, from engineers, from physicists, from every, like mm. everyone else thinks every other discipline has it easier, uh, which tells you something we're probably not teaching our topics, our courses right. Um, so one thing which I tend to like to build on is this idea of, wait, everyone else thinks what you're doing is fascinating. But when we look at our own courses, we think they're kind of dry and boring. Um, and just that we often start with these topics, like we just have things like, okay, what are the topics students need to learn? And that is almost inevitably kind of the, the starting point, the genesis and the end point of most co- uh, college courses is just a series of topics. And if you look at each individual topic, it's just, yeah, they're boring. 
<laughs> if I look at my own courses, I'm like, yeah, this is really boring if I just look at this individual topic in a vacuum. Um, but really, like um, what DC talks about, um, the autonomy, relatedness, and competence, beliefs are really important. Um, and so particularly you mentioned purpose, that's um, this idea, um, whereas uh, Pink and, uh, sorry, DC and all this talk about uh, relatedness. This is the idea of being able to be in a community of people who are excited about what you're excited about. Um, and that's a core p- part of purpose to me, which is this idea of I get to geek out or nerd out with other people who are like me. And so we see this, I mean, why do we, like, I stopped going to conferences like many years ago before the papers. I, I go to the occasional presentation, they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. For the most part, I, I want to go to conferences because I want to be around people who are excited about what I'm excited about learning. Um, it's in part kind of, I think, part of the reason why I like teaching so much is I get to nerd out in front of my classroom and tell them all the cool stuff that I just learned about this one topic. Hmm. And I think when I, when I think about my classroom, is that what my classroom is fundamentally about? Is this about you know, me conveying a bunch of topics to you, or am I trying to create an environment and a context for you to nerd or geek out about what you're learning about, what you're experiencing, Um, that this is a chance for you to be around people who are excited about what you're excited about, and that they, that, that, that you get, there really is this mutual and mutually infectious excitement. Um, And that's, a very different goal, I think, for a course than yeah, necessarily like, hey, do This uh, recalls, um, we, you know, we had a, at the uh, unconference, uh, Kate Goodman from uh, CU Denver, who had been at Boulder, had done this nice dissertation on transformative experience in, in engineering education and, and uh, in some of the literature um, – of transformative experience, it's it's even bigger than what you said. That that essentially the measure of transformative experience is whether somebody starts to see the topic everywhere, you know, so it starts to apply it in their life um, without hesitation and starts to see it. And she gave the example of a fluid mechanics uh, visualization course being transformative, where a regular uh, fluid mechanics course with all the math and stuff was not because people didn't make the connection to where fluids um, were in life, and so this this uh, geeking out uh, and and seeing it um, in the world is 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 constitutive almost of of what it means for something to be transformative. Comment. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> I absolutely agree in terms of, I think it, in order for something to be transformative, it has to be this, you, you've almost, it changes the way you see the world. And part of the way we see the world is by the community we choose to associate with. And so I, you can't do that almost in isolation, yeah. which is, I think, the way we like to, we often teach. And I think it's easy to teach that way at scale. Um, it's easier to assess students individually on an exam than it is to do projects. It's just it's just true. Um, and so that's definitely one of the big challenges that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and when we were mapping this uh, kind of naively at first, we sort of just broke down the either the DC or the, the pink um, decomposition. And, and so one of the things we did in iFoundry when we admitted the first uh, freshman class was we, uh, Karen Hyman, sent out a questionnaire and said, well, you know, why, you know, the – 
the uh, cynic question. Why do do you want to be an engineer? Uh, what what's your purpose for coming into engineering? And the students gave these beautiful answers. And and when faculty and iFoundry Council saw these, they, there was this fascination with these answers and also realization that we didn't ask that question very often. Um, but part of what the IM conversion uh, class was about, or the, the first uh, efforts were about, was having that work in the classroom. And so uh, you did this with digital circuits. How did you, how did you find out uh, d- different levels of purpose for students in this required course that they were forced to take? Yeah, uh, so one of the first things that I, I think it was nice coming from the outside of digital circuits courses is like, I didn't take these courses. I don't have any of the real beliefs about kind of, oh, this is just important because it's important, but by, you know, by fiat, but more so like, yeah. I, I was a signal processing engineer. Like, that's what I did. I looked at low signal, low power processes for transcribing speech and music, and I had to learn architecture because, to a degree, because in order to make things low power, you have to know how computers work and how they process stuff to make it efficient. Um, And so what was fun was I immediately started from this outsider perspective. And one thing which I found to be very valuable is to get other outsider perspectives. So faculty who aren't computer engineers or aren't from your discipline say, you know, why do you think this is important? It just is a starting point for me to have a sense of how do I help the students? Because some, some courses, like an architecture course, students may be like, I have no idea what this even means. I don't know. Like, how, do I find, how, do I, how do I articulate why I want to study this when I don't even know what the title of the course is? Yeah. Um, and so that was oftentimes where I started the students with other people's examples of, here's why this is interesting. Here's why you know, every, engineer, every electrical engineer, every computer engineer, every general engineer should know something about computers and how they work, how they operate, and how that can make your life better as one of those other types of engineers. Um, And really, like, a a colleague of mine, Doug Jones, uh, he put it really well. It's like 90% of the content should be relevant to 90% of all the students when we think about a core course. Um, Mm -hmm. And so getting that diverse perspective of, hey, this is this is why we over here in this other quadrant, which you wouldn't think cares about this topic, does. Um, and then so we, I seed the course with those, and we have the students kind of invest in those different venues and kind of, I kind of pitch them as, hey, if you want to go in this direction with your career, try out this project. If you want to go in this direction with your career, t- try out this project. And just giving students very different projects with very different cover stories that still engage with the core content of the course. Um, and then as the course moves on and the students start to begin to see, oh, I know what computer architecture is, I know what circuits are, um, that they can begin to do more of that investigation on their own um, and that they've kind of been set in the path. And so one of the most exciting things for me was that kind of we, we, kind, we kind of had this scaffolded. So first one I give students, here are some projects you can try. If you want to do something different, feel free to propose something, but here's at least something to get you started so it's not too scary. Um, And then we gave them increasingly more autonomy to choose, like, what application of this course content do you want to engage with? Um, And students came back with stuff I didn't even know about, (laughs) which is really exciting. Like, I I learned things from my students. So, for example, just one student project was, like, how do we actually make real low-power computing? Like, what are some of the challenges to making physical hardware that decreases power, improves sustainability, all this other stuff, which I think is becoming increasingly important in our world as 
basically, I think, like, what is it, a tenth of the world's power is eaten by computers. Um, and so they're, they're concerned about the environment. They're concerned about these things that really weren't on my radar at all. I was concerned about sure. it in terms of performance, but in terms of saving the world, I never thought about how do I save the environment through being a computer engineer. Um, that was something which never came to my mind, but I know it's resonated with lots of my students on that. So I just keep feeding that back to my students like, hey, here's what stu- other prior students do. And so I move, I've been slowly moving away from kind of what my colleagues and peers have told me, here's why this is exciting and important to yep. seeding my courses with, here's what prior students have said, here's why this is important and exciting from their perspectives. Yeah, I I think you know there's this whole purpose question and the the worth or the meaning in in the work, um, which is you know is connects back to what uh, people seeing that meaning as being transformative when they see it start to see it um, in lots of places. That's when it becomes meaningful. It just seems to me that it there's there's lots of different levels of it. There's a you know there's sort of the societal purpose for architecture and circuits there's the disciplinary purpose and then there's the and why and then at some point well why is this meaningful to you and the and when i tell and when i tell the story in short form to audiences i you know the the difference between when you ask an intrinsic motivation section and you get all these beautiful answers well this course is important to me because after you've scaffolded it and they give you these beautiful answers and then you ask a, the required course why is this meaningful to you or uh, what um um what's what's your purpose for taking this course and they say because it's required the difference between it's required and them finding personal meaning in it is huge absolutely Comment. yeah um yeah i completely agree and sorry <laughs> No, no. I well, there. I that's I abstracted from your stories, but it just seemed to me that that was some that that the the kids came up with these beautiful answers to the what's you know why uh, after after they've seen sort of other people's purposes, they came up with their own, and then just owning their own uh, at the end of the class um, somehow made the class that much more meaningful for them. And some of the statistics we did early, if I remember, if I'm remembering right, which is possible that I'm not. Yeah, I can definitely from some of our interviews, um, we, we did a lot of interviews of students after the class was over and kind of talked about their experiences. That was one of the things which I was really particularly excited to see was many of the students taking what they learned in the course and creating new things out of it. So we definitely had a handful of students who, you know, started creating workshops for their local, their local IEEE section. Um, which was in offering workshops for other students to teach them some of these digital logic concepts in the context that they were excited about. So that this course served as a springboard for students to do other new things has been fun to watch. Yeah. yeah and, and going along, I, I don't know, for me, the, the surprises that you talk about are, are the, and if, and sometimes at first I think the surprises can be scary because you're sort of, you know, when you do t- traditional curriculum design, you've got all these, uh, you've got objectives and things, you've got coverage and you've got these concepts and blah, blah. You've got all this blah, blah that you're trying to cover. And then somebody comes up with something that's not in the blah, blah. What do you do with it? But it's it's it seems mm-hmm. to me that a, a lot of times those surprises where there's a lot of passion and energy is what this, what what we're living for here, or, or at least one of the things that we're hoping to get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so you talked a little bit about this mapping of uh, and giving giving choice, but I in part in part I was struck in your what you were saying about this kind of um, it was you know autonomy kind of unbridled autonomy here would do whatever you want that doesn't work so there's there is this tend to use the word scaffolding there's this tension between structure and freedom and what have you learned about um the sequencing of that or how how do you that's a that's a that's a in barry johnson's language that's a polarity that can be tough to manage how do you uh, how do you manage that polarity between structure and freedom yeah uh we've I think we've used the word, I like this phrasing before, of structured spaciousness. Um, mm. And so this, th- th- that captures that tension. And I think there's two analogies I tend to use in contrast is you have like the cattle shoot where it's lots and lots of structure. You just tell the cows <laughs> to go along this way and you just kind of, you have to use the extrinsic motivation. Kind of. Yeah, I'm sorry. We don't usually do sound effects, but I was inspired by the the cattle metaphor. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupt. <laughs> uh, you just have to prod them through it. Um, and that's a lot of our courses. Um, and then when people think about like, oh, well, if I need to give students autonomy, then there's just this big open field and we're just going to let the cows graze yeah. wherever they want. Um, and there's a fear there. Um, and rightfully so. And cows can get lost. They can get hurt. They can get like they, they're vulnerable in that state too, potentially. So um, when we talk about this idea of structured spaciousness, I like the analogy of a track team. Like there's lots of different things people can do on a track meet. And, you know, you're, you're all within this stadium. There's a lot, you can do long jump, you can do high jumps, you can do, you know, sprints or marathons. And there's ways that you can engage with that community and that field in ways that are slightly different from everyone else. Some people might become decathletes. Some people might specialize in being sprinters. Um, but you're all still on the track team, and you're all still learning about track and field. Um, and the skills you have are transferable between each other. And so that's oftentimes the um, metaphor that I try to work with when I'm thinking about a course is, how do I get everybody on the same team, but not necessarily yeah. doing the same thing? Um, and how do we constrain that? And so there's there's a lot of nitty gritty in the details, but I I love that image of as a guiding metaphor. Cattlemen and the track team, I love it. Let's take a break, and I, after the break, I want to come back. I think one of the things that you was uh, one of the hard lessons is this this lesson around uh, faculty community and intrinsic motivation for faculty. Let's let's talk about that after the break. Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Jeffrey Herman. In the next segment, we're going to talk about the importance of faculty community and faculty intrinsic motivation to sustaining these efforts. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach 
with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us. Uh, Wednesday, this Wednesday, uh, July 19th at 4 p.m. Eastern for Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them and learn how you can join Big Beacon's community of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're back with Jeffrey Herman from the University of Illinois, and we're talking about intrinsic motivation in the classroom and how to get it. And um, we've been talking a little bit about intrinsic motivation theory and mapping it to classroom experience. And I think we want to shift and talk a little bit about um, one of the realizations you had. You were having, uh, and I'll, as I recall, you were having success in changing the classroom experience, but you were frustrated that the effort was sort of dying around you. And when you left that classroom, it didn't get picked up by the succeeding faculty members. And and you realized there was a piece missing in terms of having community around these um, um, sorts of things. How did you start to think differently about bringing change to uh, Illinois? When did, when did that start to hit you? Yeah, so hearing the plug for your four ineffectual keys to educational change, I feel like my life has been so far a case study in exactly that. Um, and one of the things I feel that we did, I did very poorly when redesigning this class, I was so focused on how do I create this innovative, exciting experience for the students. I didn't really communicate with any other faculty about what I was doing yeah. in a way that they could participate in what I was learning. Um, it was just very much like, oh, Jeffrey's going, I'm, I'm going off and doing this and making the best course I possibly can. I'm doing some research and scholarship on, you know, is my, am I actually having success in creating my change? And I was, you know, feeling very smug and self, uh, you know, just really, really good about myself with respect to my teaching and how well I was doing. And then, I mean, just because I was early in my career, things changed, and so I was no longer teaching the course. Eventually, the course was actually just cut from the curriculum and changed, dramatically changed, and all the effort and time and thought and passion that I put into the course was gone. Um, with you know, just And there's nothing I could do about it. The course was just taught, out, like, people continue to teach the course or similar, it's a replacement course, just kind of as a traditional course. Um, 
And that stung. It was like one of those first times it was just the realization of like, I understand why people get jaded, <laughs> why change is hard and why people get burnt out on yeah. change. Um, and so fortunately, right around that same time, we started up this new program at, um, uh, Illinois called the Strategic Instructional Initiatives Program, which was really spearheaded by a former dean of the college and um, and really heavily advised by Ray Price, who was really talked to th- that dean about the importance of building community among the faculty, that he, he's a lot more wise than I am about how you have to really make the faculty own, or help the faculty own, rather, their the changes that they're creating, um, that it can't just be a single individual, but it really needs to be shared among, um, among groups of faculty. And so this is where, to me, it's one of those realizations like, oh, wait, like I'm doing all the mistakes in, in my change efforts that I used to do in my classroom, where it's just, I try to transmit from myself into other people what I know. Um, and we just know that doesn't work in the classroom. And, and of course, it doesn't work when we're trying to change the minds of our fellow faculty. Um, we just can't take the lessons we've learned from our research or from our readings, or our own experience of the classroom, and help someone else believe and experience and know those things. And so instead, this program is really focused on um, building communities of faculty, and we, we call them communities of practice, much to the chagrin of some of our faculty, but um, that the goal is that they are themselves, like there's a team of three or more faculty who are co-owning innovations in the classroom. Um, so there, it might take a little bit longer, it might have a few more false starts, but in the end, what we've been seeing is a lot of teams where it's like, you know, one faculty member leaves and lo and behold, the changes stick. Um, and in fact, we see more and more faculty kind of joining these communities because one of the really exciting things I think that I've seen is that there's been a few of these communities of practice where pretty much all the new, fa- or at least, you know, majority of the new faculty in a department want to join this community because it's like, hey, you guys all care about me and you want to help me learn how to teach better. And I'm scared to teach because I've never had to do it before. So, you know, there's this community of senior faculty who are like, hey, come hang out with us. We'll show you the ropes on how to teach. And, and they bring new ideas into the community and help it to grow and change. So that's been kind of the template for what we've been trying to create instead. Yeah, we had uh, – well, we had um, uh, Matt West on the show not, not long ago. And I, one of the early communities that formed was in, um, in uh, mechanical uh, science and engineering around uh, the, mechanic, the dreaded mechanics classes, which I myself taught at the uh, University of Alabama right out of school. And, and um, uh, I believe you were involved in, in, in helping that community grow. What – when um, when this sort of thing happens, what are what are some of the keys to uh, to the faculty community forming, or um, are there some some regular some uh, things that you do's and don'ts uh, around having? Uh, maybe let's not start there. What, what do you notice uh, when an effective community uh, starts to form? Yeah, so I think first it's the faculty often have very different framings for what the problem is in the classroom than I think mm. many education researchers have. Um, so like for the, the, the mechanics sequence, so it's the statics, dynamics, mechanics and materials courses, the yep. pain point for the faculty teaching those courses was how do we 
you know, we have 600 students plus in a semester. What on earth do we do? And how do we teach in such a way that um, I don't get burnt out writing exams, uh, grading exams, grading homeworks? Like, it just, it just became a, like a pure self-preservation question yeah. almost. Yeah. Um, and what began as pure self-preservation forced them to really acknowledge that there's some challenges and problems that they didn't know how to face. And we were able to just kind of walk alongside them as they begin to wrestle with the problems that they felt um, and shape and nudge and ask good questions about, you know, like, is that really what's important? You know, if you change that, is that really going to um, create the transformative experience you want to see in your classroom? Uh, Because if you're going to go through all this effort to change the course for your self-preservation, you might as well make other changes that make it better for the students, too. Um, and so asking the questions about things like motivation. Um, so one of the really exciting things I think was, you know, like as that group was starting to get better and moving further along in terms of designing their course and redesigning and rethinking it is that they started asking those questions of who are these students? What do they care about? What are their values? What, what might motivate them? And then mm-hmm. we were able to kind of share some of the lessons from the intrinsic motivation course conversion experience from other research literature, um, and just do small things to help shape um, what they did. And so one of the, the, I think one thing I'm most excited about is an, uh, an innovation that I had zero hand in. Um, this is Matt West, as you mentioned earlier. He, like I said, he was trying to solve the problem of how do I do exams in a way that doesn't kill my soul. And one of the really critical uh, pieces of research literature out there is, you know, we should do more frequent testing if we really want students to learn the lower stakes testing. So it's, it's more this, it's emphasis on formative and getting students to practice their knowledge, put it into, into, into action rather than just kind yeah. of sitting there thinking like, Oh yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Um, and so he's invented this platform, which we have for a new testing platform that basically was designed first and foremost to make it easier for him to give and grade exams. But kind of because we were there and we were able to talk about it, what we found was, people started giving more exams, but shorter, lower stakes um, exams that started letting students to practice their knowledge in better ways, and that we've seen learning gains from that, and that so many other faculty are excited to take this platform on. It's spreading like crazy across campus um, because it, it solves a real pain point for faculty, this idea of low cost that we mentioned earlier. That yep. it really, that is a really important value proposition for the faculty that it's, I care about teaching. I want my students to learn more, but I can't spend umpteen number of hours doing that. It's just, I have too many other demands. And so that was massively exciting. And then what was, I think also really exciting is that seeing that, that the time that that freed up for the faculty, they've kind of reinvested into thinking more deeply about some of these other issues of like, how do we engage students in more authentic learning? How do we engage students in projects? How can we put a project into a course? Now that I'm not spending hours and hours grading exams, what can I do to create, you know, these, these more engaging learning experiences for students? How do I use that to create more choice opportunities? Um, How do I let students have more control over their learning? Um, And I've been seeing that in a variety of different ways. Um, from the faculty that they've kind of been stumbling into some of these more motivating learning experiences on their own now that they have more time. Um, yeah, no, I love things. that story. And, and um, 
And really, when you think about it from a like a coaching perspective, you, you're starting where the client is. So the client's in this place of what their pain point is, and they really can't see anything else until they get get past that. So that that's that's so interesting to hear it um, um, put that way. So we're you know, we've got about four minutes left, and um, you know, and we talked about this at the be at the beginning, you talked actually about the the great team you have in in computer science and the with your your twenty or so uh, uh, student instructors. I found we started by emphasizing student community. We sort of we use the we use the c word, but we weren't really thinking about faculty community. Although the initial cohort had faculty working together in kind of a nice a nice way, but actually that community was disbanded as about you know about five minutes after I left Dive Foundry, which was disappointing, uh, in part because of its costs. Um, but I, but it, it seems to me, you know, we've just talked about the faculty uh, role of community, but um, in what ways can students play a role in sustaining or bringing about these kinds of changes? What are we, what are we, what are we missing there with students? Yeah, um, so one of the things I think is it, they have to have a structure. Um, they have to have a context for having community. It's hard to have community in a vacuum. Um, yep. And so my experience with student groups is that if we just kind of say, like, hey, we're going to create a community for engineering education change or whatever, it's almost always transient and disappears, like, pretty quickly as a vapor. Um, yep. And that's always been a cha- – like, that's always been heartbreaking because it's like they'll start off doing these really great things, but then, you know, one – key person graduates and then it just dissipates. Um, And one of the things things that's been happening, I think that's been a benefit to what I've been seeing in my classroom and with the course staff is that they're all kind of on mission and on point to say, this course has to be delivered. (laughs) Um, And it's tied to a structure and it's tied to kind of a very concrete part of the university's mission and, and their departmental experience. And so being able to kind of create something that's more permanent around the community um, has, I think, has more promise than just seeing, like, let's just create a community and let's hope it sticks. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And uh, finding that finding that, that mission is non-trivial, but I agree that that's one of the things that's necessary and one of the things that will, will help sustain those kinds of efforts. We just have a very short time left. How can uh, listeners uh, find out about your work? Uh, URLs or email addresses, anything that uh, will help them find out more about some of the cool things you've done. There, everyone's welcome to email me. I'm at glherman at g, uh, illinois.edu. And then also I have a website at publish.illinois.edu slash glherman, just like my email. Great. Jeffrey, thanks so much for uh, joining us and keep up uh, – Keep up the good work. We hope that you continue to get the kind of support you've had to allow you to do the the crazy and great stuff that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with with, uh, Jeffrey Herman, our special guest, Help Transform Higher Education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. We'll be right back.